in chapter 1. And uh, this book of Timothy is one of three pastoral epistles written to Titus and Timothy to help them to know how to pastor. They knew how to apostle hanging out with Paul. And then he says, by the way, you guys are going to be pastors. They're like, we have no idea how to do that. We know how to go to towns and get beat up and rocked and stoned to death. And, but how to stick around and get stoned to death, that's another story. We don't know that. Either. But um, again, in, in the letters of the Bible, they would first put the writer's name first. In this case, Paul. It, it is interesting that most of Western history, we wait till the very end of the letter to put our name, right? But it's interesting now with emails, it's switched again. You know who sent it to you in the email. And I don't know how many years ago I actually wrote a physical letter and put my name at the bottom of anything. So things do have a way of going back around. And so the epistle is letter. That is the same thing written by the Apostle Paul, probably around 63, 64 A.D. as he left Timothy in Ephesus and headed to Macedonia over into Europe. Remember, he had been there earlier with, at Philippi. Uh, just um, Macedonia is, is partially there today. It's northern Macedonia, um, and it actually is in five different countries um, surrounding it. Uh, most of it is in Greece, and the ancient Macedonia, much bigger, was mostly in Greece. We'll talk about that later. And um, so why did Paul write this letter? Because Timothy needed some encouragement and guidance as this young leader and young pastor. The theme of the book is probably found in a couple of key verses, both of them, where Paul says, If I delay my coming. In 1 Timothy 3.15, if by delay I write to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the ground of the truth. And also in 1 Timothy 4.13, till I come, give attention to the reading, uh, to exhortation, to doctrine. So he's like, hey, I, I planned on giving this lecture in person and uh, giving you this little leadership conference, pastor's conference, but... Doesn't look like I'm gonna make it. And of course, we know that was the Lord's plan, right? To not just give it to Timothy, but all the multiple of Timothys throughout uh, the last 2,000 years of Christian history. So we know that Paul hoped to return and visit Timothy in Ephesus. But in the meantime, he wrote this priceless piece of precious instruction for practical godliness and pastoral care. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to promote godliness sound doctrine, to confront growing groups of false leaders who had made their way into the Ephesian fellowship. In short, this book is to teach us what we need to know and how to behave in the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Paul, boy, we could have a couple hours study on the life of Paul. Talking about that guy, he had one full life, didn't he? And uh, we, we know as we read through the book of Acts, his name originally was Saul, which from the tribe of Benjamin, there's only really one key person that comes out of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. Uh, it didn't work out so well for him, but nevertheless, that was sort of the tribal 
probably male name uh, that was mostly used. So from a prideful king, and uh, after becoming a Christian, he didn't feel that way anymore, and, and his name was Paul in the Greek language, which meant little. He had a very humble life after that. He seemed to be a very wealthy Jew that um, eventually headed to Jerusalem to go to the best universities, to have the best degrees. He was all over the place there in Jerusalem when Jesus was there, but their paths didn't cross, at least to a, a degree that made any sense to Paul. He was so busy, probably, uh, in his studies and in Jerusalem. But uh, right after Christianity began, after the resurrection, Paul was there and eager to stomp out this Christian sect. And he had some pretty good success right up front. He was instrumental in getting the first Christian martyr killed, Stephen. He had a front row. He was the guy who organized a big part of it. And everybody took their robes off so they could throw rocks really good. He, held, he watched everybody's clothes. And he was greatly affected, Stephen, being stoned to death and, and at his death. But not affected enough to stop. He doubled down and got special permission from the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. And off he was going to go to Tarsus. And, you know, there was a, a group there that was growing. And he wanted to stomp that out before it got much farther. And on the way, the Lord stopped him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love that. It wasn't, hey, I'm up in heaven and you got those Christians down there and I don't, you know, the Lord was right there with him, wasn't he? Right there in the midst of it. And he had a great conversion, as we remember. And, and then there was a guy there in Damascus, Paul had been blinded by the light. And after three days of praying and fasting, Ananias was told to go and lay hands on Brother Saul. And he argued with the Lord, finally did it. Saul's eyes were opened, and he began to preach the gospel. And it was a very short-lived ministry there in Damascus. They were going to kill him. Went to kill Christians, and now he's going to be a Christian that gets killed. They lowered him over the wall in a basket, and he headed his way. As we look in Galatians, it actually tells us he was three years in the Arabian desert. His revelation time. You know, most of what we preach in Christianity, we didn't learn from the Gospels. We learned from the letters, the epistles. And most of those were written by Paul, who wasn't face-to-face -face with Jesus like the other apostles, one born of, out of due time. But he got the direct revelation of the church, of the Gentile Christianity, where most world would be a part of that kind of Christianity. And it was by revelation to Paul. He says, my gospel, my revelation that I received. And so he is an incredibly special, unique figure for us in Christianity. But after three years of getting it, he knew the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he knew a lot of stuff about a lot of things 
He was a very intelligent guy. But uh, he headed back home to Troas and was back in the tent making business with his family. And then Barnabas and the guys in Antioch, there's a lot of Antiochs, but this is one uh, over um, closer to Jerusalem. And uh, they said, we need you to come and be one of the teachers here. And so Paul made the trip and started helping co-pastor, really, um, that church in Antioch. And a lot of Gentiles were there and a lot of questions came up. And, and Paul began to explain to them, you don't got to keep the law. You don't got to get circumcised. You can eat bacon. Um, you know, just... And of course, when the, the other apostles would show up and guys from Jerusalem, especially the Pharisees that had been become Christians, very much thought this Christianity was still very, very Jewish. And Paul had to stop them and say, that's not the gospel I received from the Lord. It is not Jewish like you think. No circumcision, no dietary restrictions. And it was a difficult time. Paul had to confront them. And, and, and well, he says in Philippian church that many preach the gospel hoping to hurt me. The things they preach are trying to damage me. He didn't have a lot of friends in that part of the world. It was a very hard time for Paul. But yet he stood his ground. And he says, the gospel I preach, he called it in Acts 20, is the gospel of grace. And uh, it is something uniquely that Paul, God revealed to Paul and even the other apostles. Peter writes, hey, what Paul writes is hard to understand, but he's right. And he, Peter actually called Paul's writings scripture. So they knew it. They didn't like it. It wasn't Jewish enough for them. They didn't get it. But yet we don't even know that Jewish world and the confines and the evolution that had to go on with those apostles to finally be liberated into a freedom under the law. But Paul um, went about and preached the gospel. His goal was to preach the gospel where Jesus had never been heard before. And then to kick the dust off his feet and go right on to the next place. He wasn't going to slow down. He was just going to be a shooting star. And when he burned down and died, wherever he was in the world, he wanted to get as far as he could. But the Lord slowed him down at times. And one of those places was Ephesus, where he actually got stuck for three years. And uh, he didn't seem to be too happy about it. But um, he finally said, I, I am going. And uh, I do know that we can't leave our presence here. So he left Timothy and others behind and said, Timothy, uh, you're promoted. You're no longer uh, a, a fellow apostle. You are now a pastor. And he's like, I've never been called to be a pastor. What am I doing? I don't know how to be a pastor. And uh, Timothy, interesting enough, was quite the opposite of Paul. He seems to be a rather timid, shy, bashful type of guy. Not the A-type personality, bull in a type, china shop like the apostle Paul was. Well, we could talk more about that, couldn't we? But Paul, quite a story. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means one who is sent out. An ambassador, uh, an official commissioner, a messenger. And not sent by a king, but sent by the king of kings. 
In Acts 9, we hear about this sending, this apostleship, right from Jesus. By revelation in, in Acts 9, 15 and 16, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Uh, I'm glad I didn't get that calling, although it's, it's sort of worked out very close to that. Um, uh, but interesting, you're, you're going to go to Gentiles, you're going to be speaking to kings and to the children of Israel, the Jews. Interesting, the Lord in his calling put the Jews in the last place. But yet Paul would tell, him, tell us that his custom was to first go to the synagogues and preach to the Jews because they are God's original chosen people. But we know it's not the Jews by race anymore, is it? It's those who are of the faith of Abraham. And so whether you are a Jew in the faith of Abraham or a Gentile in the faith of Abraham, no difference in God's sight. But the Jews who by nature are Jews by DNA, but yet do not walk in the faith of Abraham, even though they are by flesh and blood children of Abraham, they are not children of God because they're not walking in the faith of Abraham. And this, Paul said, I myself would be willing to take a trip to hell that my Jewish brothers could be saved. But yet, he said, there's a veil over their eyes. They're the toughest group to reach, according to the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul also says about his calling in Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, nor through, but through Jesus Christ, the God and Father who raised him from the dead. Paul said, I, I, have, I did not have this thing that we see where I'm, you know, Paul would lay hands on guys and say, okay, you're the pastor of the church or you're the elder of the church. He'd lay hands on them and, and he would ordain them, if you would, to be ministers in certain places. But Paul said he was the first domino. <laughs> that it didn't happen to him, not by a man, but it was by Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who started this apostolic work to the Gentiles. And so he, he, he said very plainly that you could go up and ask the Jews back in Jerusalem and you may not get a good, get a good recommendation depending on who's there right now. Because sometimes the apostles were out being apostles. And, and there would be a few people that were sort of connected to the apostles or maybe one of the two apostles that were wrestling with Paul's gospel of grace at the time. So it, it wasn't a real cohesion with Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and the apostles of Jesus that were mainly apostles to the Jews for the first part of their main ministry. And so he says, it doesn't matter to me. And he actually goes on in Galatians 1 to say, whatever Peter's doing, I don't care. You know, he's doing what he's doing. I had to rebuke him when he was here because he was stumbling uh, all the, the Gentiles because they, you know, Peter was, you know, pounding down the bacon when all Gentiles are around, but then when the Jews would come up from Jerusalem, he would act like he's all kosher until they left. <laughs> and he, he just said, I, you know, yeah, Peter, yeah, he's, he's the guy. I, I had to rebuke him. I had to tell him to quit stumbling the church. 
and in many churches in the whole region of Galatia. So, you know, me and Peter got an understanding. You go do your ministry with the Jews, I'll go do my ministry with the Gentiles, and let's just sort of keep clear of each other. So Paul, Paul's making it clear. He has a very unique calling, revelation, and we know that as modern Christianity today. In John 15, 16, I think Paul's a perfect example of what Jesus was teaching. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you in John 15, 6, 16. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle. And then he says something interesting by the commandment of God. Now, it's unique here because if you look in the other epistles, he'll say by the will of God. But here he uses a specific word that is very, very strong that, you know, Timothy, I'm an apostle and I can't get out of it. <laughs> there is no getting out of this. Ezekiel couldn't get out of it. Jeremiah couldn't get out of it. Amos couldn't get out of it. There's a lot of guys, when they were called, they didn't want to do their ministry, and God says, here's your options, none. Um, <laughs> I, I'd say the biggest story on this was Jonah. Boy, that guy, that guy did not like that command. But uh, God did get his way. And Timothy does not want to be the pastor of the Calvary Chapel of uh, Ephesus. <laughs> but... Um, Paul says, I'm doing what I'm doing by command, and you're doing what you're doing by command. Neither one of us have that option. Out of the preacher's uh, sermon Bible, there's a great quote. The word command, epitagen, means one under orders, or to place in a position of obligation. And the military, a superior may say to a subordinate soldier, you have your orders. The word command carries with it the idea of obligation, compulsion, force, necessity. And he says, I am an apostle commanded by God. And then I love this, of our Savior and our hope. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope. Paul had one thing burning in his heart more than any other thing. And that was to show people the one door to heaven. One way only. Now some people will try to say, well, there's got to be other options. Because it just seems like too constraining. Well, if there was one antidote to your type of cancer, would you say, unless there's three, I think it's too narrow. Are you thankful for the one? But when you think about it, Christianity is either the most beautiful, heroic story, or it's the most evil God that's ever existed. Think about it for a minute. If I had my son next to me, 
and a drunk is stumbling around and, and starts to fall in front of an oncoming car. And my son jumps over and pushes the drunk out of the way and he gets hit by the car. And the people looking by go, that was unnecessary. The drunk gets up going, nobody needed to help me. I would have been fine. You got a really stupid son. He just died for nothing. If Jesus was not the only way, he was pretty stupid. Because he clearly got the message there was no other way but through him. Now let's turn it around. My son's next to me, the drunk's in the street. And I push my son into the drunk and knock the drunk out of the way and my son gets killed. Do people come over and start patting me on the back saying, boy, you're so brave. You're such a hero. Thank you for saving that drunk. Or am I a murderer? Think about it. If God made an angel to die in our place, God would be evil. If God made a man to die in our place, God would be evil. But if God gave himself as a sacrifice, then he's a hero. You, do you see? But here's the thing. If I say to my son, they need salvation. And my son says, I'm willing to go and save them. And of course, it breaks my heart, right? But I allow my son to go and die. Not just a death, pretty hideous death. Even worse spiritually when he was sinless and took the sin of the whole world. And then Jesus raises from the dead and says, now there's a way for salvation. And I say, Jesus, I didn't want to tell you before you died that you're now the 699th way. There's meditation, there's Buddha, there's... Do you understand, even if there is one more other way, I'm evil. Because I asked my son to die when there was another way. Do you understand? The only way the Christian story becomes a beautiful story is if there is only one way. If there are two ways, the story of the Bible becomes very dark and evil. But the truth is, we are in serious trouble. We are sinners with a capital S, and we know it, our conscience knows it, our soul knows it, our hearts know it. And we've tried to be better, we've tried to be good. We had a couple of weeks here and there, we thought we did pretty good, but then we're right back to where we started. We, we know that we are sinners to the very core and we cannot save ourselves. And that gives us a great depression and a sense of despair because there is no hope for us. But Paul is saying, I'm an apostle by the command of God because there is only one savior. There is only one hope. And I am willing to lay down everything for my entire life. Timothy, you don't like pastoring. You don't like Ephesus. You don't like being away from me. You don't like the fact that you're stuck in one place rather than going out and preaching the gospel where they've never heard Jesus before. But 
You're laying down your life in Ephesus because there's only one way. There's one Savior. And there is only one hope for this world. In Isaiah 43, 11, it says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Hosea 13, 4, Yes, I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. The apostles were told to quit preaching the name of Jesus, and in Acts 4, 12, it's declared, there is nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name, referring to Jesus, under heaven given among men by which men may be saved. John 17, 3, in Jesus' incredible prayer, this is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 John 5, 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Our Savior, only one Savior, our hope. Our Savior gives us hope. Hope is not I hope so, it's certainty. We are certain. We know that we know. So when we get bogged down with earth, this is hard to live on earth. Man, it's hard to live on earth. I, I, I was just watching this thing on YouTube about all the incredibly famous people that committed suicide over this COVID period. Suicide is up over 20%. There is one state that actually... The suicide rate went up so high, I believe it was Pennsylvania, there's more suicides than there were people that died of the COVID. They literally are having to sit still and listen to their conscience. They're having to sit still and feel boredom. They're having to sit still and face being still and maybe feeling feelings and thinking thoughts. And I'll tell you what, I was that way up till I was 15. And if you're without God, you are without hope, amen? It's true. It breaks my heart to think of so many people committing suicide, Satan, that evil one who's here to steal, kill, and destroy. In Ephesians 2, 12, it says that, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. David in Psalms 25.5, I like the way it says in it in the New Living, or the NIV, the New International Version. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope in you all the day long. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the hope of eternal life. Titus 2, 13. 
looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be like, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And in verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Man, this COVID-19 is horrible. We're going to heaven. But, but what if I die? You, you go to heaven. <laughs> but I'm not an essential worker. Bummer. <laughs> but you're going to heaven. You, you get it? This is temporary. I mean, imagine a guy at a bus stop trying to build himself a house there. And you're like, what are you trying to build yourself a house at the bus stop? Are you going to live here? No, I'm just here five more minutes. Why are you knocking yourself out like this for five minutes? And then you're going to leave it all behind? Yeah. That's us, isn't it? Life is it's just a vapor. We're here just for a couple of seconds. We don't have to knock ourselves out because the bus is coming. We're going to heaven. Well, now in verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Timothy was a true son in the faith. You know, Paul did have some sons that abandoned Christ. Study that in 2 Timothy. Demas has forsaken us, having loved this present world. Paul mentions a couple of guys that he knew that were a part of the Ephesus church. We're going to see at the end of 1 Timothy. And he said, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who now I deliver over to Satan, that they learn not to blaspheme. Life throws curves at us, doesn't it? And if your doctrine, your trust, your knowledge, really, you need to know a lot before those fiery darts start flying your way. You have a strong foundation. So no matter what the earthquakes may shape things, you're, you're not wandering away from God in faith or wandering away from God in doctrine. Timothy was a true son. Boy, what a history these two guys had. Paul, on his very first missionary journey, very first, pretty exciting. He, he just gets going and he ends up down in a place called Lystra or Lystra. And he meets Timothy's mom and grandma. Timothy's dad, a Greek, doesn't seem to, to, to have any spiritual temperature. But yet his mom and grandma being Jews, his dad being a Gentile, grew up knowing the scriptures. And it tells us in Acts 16.3 that Paul wanted him, Timothy, to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him. I've been a Bible teacher a long time, but I have not learned that particular technique. <laughs> um, but he, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I'll have to try that in the next Israel trip. Grab, <laughs> grab some teenagers saying, hey, we're going to go to Israel and just let you know before we go there. <laughs> Don't want to stumble the Jews that are there. You know, you wonder how that all happened. 
You know, was Paul like sharpening a knife going, hey, what's up? <laughs> well, Timothy, I got some bad news. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just hard for me to picture Paul doing that to Timothy. <laughs> Nevertheless, Timothy agreed and he understood that his dad, everybody knew his dad was a Gentile and probably didn't have him circumcised. And so that was going to be a, a, a real stumbling block to even, before they could even start talking to the Jews, they would shut them down because this uncircumcised Jew, because in the Jewish culture today, in order to immigrate to Israel, you have to prove that your mother and your grandmother were Jews. And then you are a Jew. But if your dad's a Jew, that doesn't make you a Jew. It's your mother and your grandmother. But if you think about it, those are the rules today in Israel, but if you think about it, King David is not a Jew, according to those rules. Anyway, that's another thing to get into when we study Ruth. But um, anyway, he was considered a Jew, but he, they knew he wasn't circumcised. And so his mother and grandmother, it says in 2 Timothy 1.5, When I called you to remember the genuine faith that is in you, which was dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also. Timothy was saying, man, I just don't even know if I'm a genuine Christian. And, and Paul is saying, oh, yeah. And in 2 Timothy 3.15, And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Interesting, Paul tells Timothy, what is going to make you successful as a pastor is the work your mother and your grandmother did in your childhood. That's what's going to make you successful as a pastor. Interesting. That word in 2 Timothy 3.15 for child there is the Greek word brephos. The reason I pointed out, it is a word for baby, infant. Even an infant in the womb. It is not a word that is used past being an infant. So it's interesting that Paul is saying from the womb and as a small baby. They were already discipling you for the ministry. And that foundation given by your mother and your grandmother and Sunday school teachers. You know, you say, well, I've been teaching the five-year-old kids and that's about it. You have done more to train up the pastors and missionaries of the next generation than you have any idea. Well, Paul, Timothy joined Paul in his first, second, third missionary journeys. Timothy was there with Paul as a companion. And Paul said he is one of a kind. He had Titus, he had Silas, he had Luke. But notice what he says about Timothy in particular. In Philippians 2, verse 19 to 22. But I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Timothy was a uniquely sacrificial, giving, caring guy who really put the church and the cause of Christ above himself and, and all other things, like Paul did. But there was just two of them that Paul said. You, you wonder when Titus and Silas and some other guys are reading that letter of Philippians going, whoa, hey, yeah, what about, you know, 
hurts a little bit, but you know, Paul's right. And then the second part of verse two, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now we're familiar that Paul in the epistles says grace and peace. But in the pastoral epistles, he adds the word mercy in the middle. The grace of God. Grace precedes the peace, always. You'll never see it in a different order. You won't see peace and grace. There's always grace and peace. The grace is, it was the Gentile way of, of saying hi. It was grace to you, graciousness to you. Blessings, favor, gifts be bestowed upon you. But then that word became Christianized. And, and as, as many words in various civilizations become Christianized, and so that regular Gentile way of saying hi became one of the most predominant words in the New Testament. Grace, God's favor upon you, God loving you. It's the key. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. And then the truth. You don't get the truth until I tell you about the grace. And then John 1.16, and of all his fullness, we've all received grace for grace, or grace upon grace. Grace in and of itself is all you need more. It's like you come to God and say, God, I, I, I've sinned. I need some forgiveness. I need some kindness. I need some mercy. I, I need grace. And you've got your little five-gallon bucket saying, Lord, fill this gallon up with grace and I, I can be forgiven and feel comforted and make it another day. And God says, grace. And he looks at the angels and says, give that boy some grace. And it's like he's standing there and this fire hose takes off and starts filling up his five-gallon bucket. And he's like, okay, okay, but he has no idea. He looks around and there's 30 other fire hoses coming his way. <laughs> and before he knows it, he's out in the middle of this rather large pond going, okay. And the Lord's saying, okay, that's grace. But I don't give grace. I give grace upon grace. And there he is now swimming in this pond and he looks and there's the damn walls and every dredge opening up. This wall is opening up and the water, the dam comes pouring on him. He looks over to the east and the west and the south and there's dams opening and just flooding his way. And the Lord's laughing as he's trying to stay afloat and keep from drowning. And the Lord says, yeah, I love it when they ask for grace. But I never give grace. It's grace upon grace. I think of um, that thief on the cross. Again, there was a moment. I mean, he was lived his whole life as a sinner. He was so incorrigible that even though he was a thief, not a rapist or a murderer, they were going to kill him. I and mean, you got to be a serious thief. you got to be a persistent thief. you got to be a guy that, that says there's nothing we can do to help you. But if you read the Gospels, even as he was coming out, they were going through the Via Della Rosa on the way, they were mocking him, and then on the cross, they were, these are hardened guys. You're getting ready to die, and you have energy to mock the guy next to you? Usually people are a little more sober-minded than that. But he begins to mock Jesus. 
And there's Jesus. John, take care of mom. Father, forgive me. They don't know what they do. This thief got it. And he said, this guy is so loving, so forgiving, so accepting, so receiving, that even though I've lived my entire life as a horrible person, even though all this guy has ever known about me is making fun of him and mocking him, but right now, if I ask him to bless me, I know he will. That's faith. He wasn't religious. He didn't know how to be a religious guy in prayer. He just said what he knew he to say. Jesus, Lord, in your kingdom, when you come, future tense, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. If you believe Jesus is Lord and God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right then, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a verse we know well, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He knew he could never come off that cross and make up for his bad life. This thief knew, I will never live and do good works to earn my way to salvation. I'll never go to church. I'll never go to a prayer meeting. I'll never give money to help the poor or to support the church. I'll never, he knew he would never do one work for God, but he still believes he would go to heaven. That's faith. And then after we believe in God's goodness towards us, we continue in that. In Romans 1.17, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as is written, the just shall live by faith. So we start believing in the goodness of God and that God will forgive us and have mercy on us and love us and get us through to the end. And then we continue to have faith. The first day, the tenth day, the tenth year, the last rest of our life that God is going to continue to be good to me. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm worthy of it, but because that's who he is. And that's his nature. We look at the children of Israel, they never could get it. God came and said, I love you. I want to deliver you. I, I want to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. You're my treasure. I'm going to put you on, get you on my back like a, the wings of an eagle and fly you to myself. You are my special people of all peoples on the earth. They come out of Egypt and their immediate thought was, we knew God hated our guts and was tricking us. He's going to let Pharaoh kill us right now. We barely got out of Egypt. We're not even out of Egypt. We barely got out of downtown Egypt. <laughs> they go across the Red Sea. They're celebrating. Three days later, there's no water. We knew God brought us out here to kill us. Thirst, yes, that's the way, a good way. Let's all die of thirst. Watch our babies die of thirst and all our animals. Then there was no food. Ah, we knew God was, they, they constantly said, God's going to kill us. Hunger, thirst, enemy, his divine judgment because we're so horrible. Um, they, they finally get to the Jordan. And Joshua and Caleb are going, God delights in us. He wants to give us this land. Those giants, they're our bread and butter. Those giants can't defeat God. God's fighting for us. What are you worried about? Boy, they were mad. 
Kill those guys. Kill Caleb and Joshua. They irritate me. We got it all figured out. God wants our kids to get raped and our women to get raped and all of us to either get killed or become slaves of those giants. We know what God's really up to. They could not believe that God actually loved them. They couldn't believe that God wanted to bless them. They could not believe in the grace of God. What does it look like to have faith in the grace? In Hebrews 4, 4, it tells us, and he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then in Hebrews 10, or 4, Hebrews 4, 10, for he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from all his work as God did from his. As you read Hebrews 4, he explains, the children of Israel never rested in the goodness of God that trusted that God loved them. They could never be at peace because they never had faith in the grace. But you think about God, he finished making everything on the sixth day and then he made a special day for the point of rest in the finished work of God. Even God rested in his finished work. So you think about Adam and Eve, when were they made? At the end of the sixth day. How did Adam and Eve come into this world? Their first day of life was to rest in the finished work of God. In the finished work of Jesus. He did it for them. All this is made for you, Adam and Eve. And what were they to do? They were just to say, why are you resting, God? Because there is no more work to do. God's infinite. He can make an infinite, infinite amount of plants and mountains and fruits. But he, he said, I'm done. There is nothing more I'm going to make. And it's done and it's prepared for you. What do you do now? You rest, receive by faith that God did all of this for me. And I just trust at rest in the finished work of God for me. This is how salvation comes. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. He did 100% of the work. How are we saved? We cease from our labors as God sees from his. There is no more work to be done. We just by faith receive his love, receive his kindness, Receive his forgiveness. And that is how we come into peace. Until you get the grace and can rest in the grace by trusting in God's nature, by experiencing his word and a trust in his word and trust in who he is. Isaiah 26.3 says it best. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. How true that is. 2 Timothy 2.13 When we are faithful at least, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. Romans 5.20 But when our sin abounds, his grace abounds much more. 2 Corinthians 12.9 and, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's good because that's all I have to offer God. I, I want to be strong. 
I just never seem to do it long enough to make a difference. But God's grace is sufficient. And so then we get the peace, the shalom, the Jewish way of saying I. But the word peace doesn't mean just not at war. When you look at the word peace, it means healing, wholeness, completeness. There's no cracks in the egg, so to speak. You become a whole person. And I would say emotionally, as well as spiritually. You become a person who has that inner strength, that inner confidence. And, and God makes you strong as a human being, emotionally and mentally and spiritually. Because, oh, I don't have to worry about all the things in this world. When I start worrying, I, I just take it to the Lord, cast all my cares on Him, and then I remember, I'm going to heaven anyway. What's the matter? <laughs> but interesting, here he says to the pastor, you can't get to the peace, can you? You know the grace. You teach the grace. You, you used to just enjoy the grace and have the peace. But now you're the spiritual leader and you don't have the peace. Because you're not giving yourself mercy. You're not recognizing that God's giving you mercy. You see, I think there's some lies we believe as we grow spiritually mature in the Lord. I think we start thinking falsely that as now that I'm a mature Christian, I shouldn't be struggling with sin like this. We need to go back to Romans 7, right? Paul was a rather mature Christian when he wrote Romans 7. Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. A wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. I think we also sometimes wrongly think God put us on a probationary period, but after five, ten years, that probationary period's over, and we should start producing our own holiness by now. We know the Bible, we know the Psalms, we've been through it all, spiritual warfare, and, and you know, you're not, you're ten years in the Lord, you should look holier than that. And you know it! I think we start falsely thinking that, that man, I, I should be a better example than this. I, I should, I, I'm such a loser as a Christian. I've been doing this for 20 years now, and, and I'm still so weak and struggling, and, and I, I'm still not the example I want to be. And we feel so guilty over it sometimes. We just want to disappear quietly, check out. And just say, everybody will be better if I just quit leading. Quit being a, a worship leader or a home fellowship leader or a, a pastor. These are all things that are just lies from the pit of hell. Our flesh is not getting better as we live on this earth. It's getting worse. That's why he said back before the flood, man, I'm not capping this. Because you guys get up to be five, six, nine hundred years old, you are really wicked. <laughs> I, I feel that way. I mean, I, I'm six, I'll be six years old in a few weeks. Think I'd live another 60 years, 120 years? I, I do not want that. I don't think I'll be a very good Christian at that point. <laughs> I am getting grumpier by the second. <laughs> I, I hear myself being that grumpy old man. I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> well, it comes from my back hurting, my knees hurting, my 
you know, I'm ready to go to sleep at two, and I, you know, I'm trying to stay awake till eight. Years ago, I asked Gail Irwin, I, I said, man, when you, once you get up like in your 50s, you really start living holier, right? This is back when I was in my 20s, and, and, and Gail said, well, when do you struggle with sin, Brian? Isn't it when you feel weak and irritable and tired? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, you only feel like that more after 50. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, I guess I really do got to wait for heaven. But again, the peace doesn't come from ourself. It doesn't come from meditation. It doesn't come from our holy living. It comes from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not our peace. It's His peace that He'll give to us in grace and understanding how much mercy He does have on us. And we live in that peace. And so, like Hebrews 4 says, we just need to constantly come boldly to that throne of grace and to get mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, right? Peter, man, he struggled. And he said, man, I, I've made a mess of this life. I am the worst apostle. But the God of all grace, 1 Peter 5.10, who's called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you've suffered a while, like, like what, denying the Lord three times? Cursing that you never knew the guy? Yes, yes, that's what I'm talking about. After we suffer a while in this flesh, may perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. All those words bring peace to me. All those words bring peace. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The last verse of the Bible is what? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. When the grace is the key. We'll never get to the peace unless we get the grace. Get the grace. And as you grow in the Lord, don't expect more from your flesh. God didn't save us and say after five years of probation, it's up to you whether you make it to heaven after that. He, he's, he's, his mercies are new every morning. Have peace. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Continue to speak it deep, deep into our hearts. In Jesus' precious name.